Uh, if you've looked ahead, you realize that uh, this is quite a chapter that we have in front of us. And my wife, yesterday morning, uh, we were out for a walk, and she said, um, well, do you feel, do you feel ready uh, for tomorrow morning because you've done your study and you're out, you feel, feel good about your outline, you're, uh, you're ready, you feel ready for it? And I said, well, here's the deal, honey, I do. I feel like I have a great outline. I feel like I've studied to know what the passage is. I'm not sure uh, I'm ready because somehow I've got to teach this in about 40 to 45 minutes um, and have it be something that is, uh, that is impacting us and interesting to us. My favorite um, Matthew scholar D.A. Carson, uh, when he uh, taught this, uh, lectures, lectured on this, actually took five one-hour lectures to go through this, um, which I did listen to, to all of them, but this is, this is an amazing chapter. And let me just say this, um, while I'm challenged by what we have before us this morning, I'm very excited about what we have. In fact, my, my, uh, my concern, my angst is I want so badly for you to know uh, fully um, what God has for us in this, in, this, in this chapter. And so there's some great stuff in here, and there's probably going to be some things that are going to cause you to want to study further on your own. And if that is true, please go ahead and email me um, later today or next week and say, Todd, I want to look more into this. Can you, can you send me in the right direction? Because what we have before us here is some really amazing stuff. Now, I'm going to tell you this morning, we've got some heavy lifting to do which is tough at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, but if there's any group that I know of, actually in all of Christendom in America, that could do heavy lifting at 6.30 in the morning, it's this group right here. So I believe in you guys uh, this morning. Um, what we have before us in chapter 24 and 25, 25 is next week, don't worry, we're not gonna tackle that. What we have before us here is Jesus speaking about the end of times, um, speaking about the, uh, the, the course of history and ultimately the, the consummation of history, the consummation of the kingdom, the return of Christ. Um, you'll see before you in your notes that, I, that there's a lot on, under this scriptural introduction. And before I read, uh, and I'm going to read it in sections for us like we did a few weeks ago so that we can uh, read that section, dive into it, and then move on to the next. But before I do that, I do think it's very important for us to have context here for us. So I've put that for you in the notes. Uh, context and structure are so important to understanding this passage. The context here is what's called the Olivet Discourse. And the reason it's called the Olivet Discourse is because you'll see in verse 3, it says that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. So they've left the temple, and now he's just with his disciples, and he's on the Mount of Olives. And this chapter and the next chapter are considered the Olivet Discourse. He's, uh, he's left the temple, and that in itself is symbolic. For the last time, Jesus has left the temple. God has left the temple. Um, and now he's headed to a cross. Um, there's so, we, could, we could do a whole uh, series on that right there. Um, he's sitting there on the Mount of Olives. The disciples have a question for them. Now, what has happened is that Jesus has said, made a comment regarding the destruction of the temple. And the disciples now are asking a question. They actually ask two questions. Some people say three questions. They convolute them. Um, so they're, they're wanting to know, when is this destruction of, you said, Jesus, that not one stone will be placed upon the other, and we know that you're going to start your kingdom. When are these things going to happen? And they, they kind of put all those events together 
almost as if it's one question. And Jesus is going to help them understand that the answer to that is not just one answer. It's not just one time, but that there is a course of history that has to take place. And he's going to explain that to him, to them, excuse me. And of course, the theme here, both in 24 and 25, is uh, the consummation of the kingdom. So the kingdom has been inaugurated with Christ's advent coming here to earth, and then it's about to face its pivotal moment as we study the cross in the next several weeks. But here he's talking about his second advent, when he returns, when the kingdom will be finally realized in its fullness uh, for all of humanity and really for all of the universe. The structure of this passage is important for us to to grasp or to know some things about. I love the way D.A. Carson puts it when it comes to um, uh, understanding end times passages like in Daniel and Matthew. And actually, this Olivet Discourse has parallel passages in Luke chapter 21 and Mark chapter 13. But I think D.A. Carson makes a great point and says, this is our problem as theologians, as those men and women who study the Bible uh, when it comes to these things, is we've got three things we've got to kind of hold together, and I have them listed for you. The one is the imminent return of Christ. In other words, Bible teaches clearly that, there, that it will be a surprise, that nobody knows the time or the day. Now, the question is, is that imminence any second? Could it happen any second? Or does the imminence mean that it, imminent return mean that it could happen, um, you know, in your lifetime? That's, that's you know, in, in, in the next few years. And that's one issue that's got to be held because that's taught in Scripture. Another issue that's taught in Scripture is that there's certain things that must happen. There's certain signs that must happen. Scripture clearly teaches that. The third thing that Scripture clearly teaches is that there really is just one return. There's not multiple returns of Christ. There's just one return of Christ. And as D.A. Carson says, the different um, end-time theories uh, in regards to Scripture um, in particular, this passage, really center around trying to pull those together. Um, and some of them do it, do two of them neatly, but then leave questions about the other ones. Um, so I put some of those, the main views that probably exist for um, the Bible and certainly for Matthew chapter 24. Um, the first is the dispensational view. That's actually a view that I grew up under. Um, that would probably be most or best represented or most well-known representation would be John MacArthur. And a dispensational view has a neat timeline, um, and it seems like things kind of fit. The problem is, in order to make that timeline happen, dispensationalists have to say that there's actually kind of two returns of Christ, right? So I grew up understanding, okay, there's going to be a sudden rapture of believers, and then there's going to be seven years of tribulation, and then Christ is going to return. Um, that is, it is really hard to get there in Scripture. It is really hard to, 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 uh, to get to that understanding uh, from Scripture uh, that there's this, there's this two-return type thing in this, this particular or specific seven-year tribulation. The other view that is held here in the structure of Matthew 24 in particular is what's called a partial preterist view. And... Uh, <clears throat> R.T. Uh, Wright and R.T. France, who are great theologians. In fact, one of my, uh, I knew I was in trouble when I started studying this a few weeks ago because my two favorite common uh, theologians in Matthew are France and Carson, and they both disagree on Matthew 24. <laughs> I thought, 
Okay, we're in trouble here. But the partial, but by the way, uh, everybody I've talked to, uh, including the great theologian, Dr. Mary Wilson, said, oh, just go with Carson. Um, the preterist, the partial preterist view represented by France and Wright here basically says that in Matthew 24, everything up to verse 35 has already happened. It's already happened. And these are, these are things that have already taken place and now we're kind of in this inter-advental period that, that we're, the only thing left is the return uh, of Christ. Um, the main problem with this is that the language in verses 29 through 31 just mirrors so clearly language you see in other places in Scripture regarding the return of Christ. And it's like the, the partial preterists are trying to just shove this idea into verses 29 and 31, and it, it really is hard to, to kind of get there uh, with any simplicity. Um, I really do, and I didn't like this just because I was told, hey, just go with Carson, but I really do like Carson and Wenham's view or structure approach to Matthew 24, and that is this idea that the kingdom of God is now but not yet. And that what's happening in Matthew 24 is that the disciples' two questions are being answered by Christ, not necessarily simply in order, but that he's talking about both things and helping them understand both things. And we'll pull that together. And that the division really is at verse 28. That verse 28 is talking about the birth pains that are going to occur during this inter-advental period. Inter-advental just means there was the first advent of Christ when he came to earth and died on a cross, and there's the second advent of Christ saying that uh, when he returns again. That inter-advental period, and that verses 15 through 21 are specifically about the destruction of the temple. So I just want to give that to you to say, I'm rolling with Wenham and Carson on this structure. And that's where I'm landing on these things. Um, and again, if you would like to study those things further, I would be happy to, to give you the opportunity to show you the resources to do that. With that said, let's read Matthew 24, verses 1 through 28, and let's see what Jesus has to say about his return. This is exciting stuff, brothers. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, don't you, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They will then deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. By the way, that's the reader of Daniel, and that's Jesus saying that. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is his in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being will be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, brothers, let's take that section and let's just look at the beginning of the end. That's what I put there in the notes, the beginning of the end. I'm just taking Jesus' words there and saying, this is the beginning of the birth pains. Verses 6 through 12 describe to us these birth pains, this, these things that must be experienced uh, before Christ's return. Now, understand that what Jesus is saying is, <laughs> listen, they're excited about his return, but he's basically saying, there's a lot of things that have to happen before I return. He's actually putting the brakes on them and their thoughts about this happening. And that makes sense. You, you remember that in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus makes it clear to John, excuse me, like to Peter, how it is that Peter will die. Right? And he talks about that. So clearly Jesus knew that Peter would die before his return. Though Jesus did not know his return, he knew enough to know about that. Um, so there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, like he says in verse 6, but the end is not yet. He wants them to understand these things have to happen. So how do we get around that? I was just talking with Jack this morning about uh, some World War II history. Uh, he said that he uh, picked up the book that I recommended a couple weeks ago and, and said, I'm, am I sure I have the right book, Todd? You said this book was exciting, and I'm feeling like it's a sleeper. Um, so I'm thinking maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't know, because I don't think there's anything wrong with Jack Brown. But let me, for those of us that have some grasp of World War II history, uh, you'll remember that, that it was June 6, 1944, that's, that was called D-Day. That, that was when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. Now, anybody who had any sense of what was going on at that time, including the German generals, understood that after that day, or at least by June 8th, that the war was over. The war had been won. The decisive moment of World War II was that moment. And the, and the German generals knew if we don't keep them from, from establishing a beachhead, we cannot win this war. So there was a victory that day that determined the course of the war. VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, didn't occur till almost a year later in May of 1945. 
So between June 6, 1944, D-Day, and then in May, VE Day in 1945, there was basically this mop-up period. But during this mop-up period, the Allied forces did face uh, opposition. They did, face, they did uh, experience uh, a lot of casualties uh, during that time. Um, there was even a great moment of, of uh, a counterattack by the Germans called the Battle of the Bulge um, that, that looked like that might, that might break through, that might cause uh, the war to be changed. But really, everybody knew, again, even including the Germans, they knew the war was over on June 6th. It's a great illustration. This was used by a theologian, honestly, I think 1947, to describe what's going on in human history when it comes to the redemptive work of Christ. And that is this. The cross and the resurrection is D-Day. Christ's return is VE Day. And what we're living in right now is that period in between, the mop-up period. And there's casualties and there's battles. But I'm telling you, brothers, the war has been won <laughs> and it's already determined. And we're marching to that victory. But we are going to face, and that's what Jesus is saying here, there's some things that are going to happen in this inter-advental period that he wants his disciples and us to understand. And here are some of those things. Verses 6 and 7. There's going to be political upheaval. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And we've seen that. And we'll continue to see that. That is just going to be the par for the course during this inter-advental period. We are going to see more and more political upheaval. And let me just say, uh, we in America, especially since 1945 have generally experienced, have generally experienced uh, 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 protection or distance from issues of wars and political upheaval. We have, we have, when you look at the rest of the world and their history in the last 50 years, what has occurred in other nations uh, hasn't occurred here. Or what other nations have experienced, we haven't experienced here. So in some ways, we can go, well, no, I think things are getting better or there's an opportunity for this. And sometimes as Christians, we get caught up in this idea of triumphalism. And that's this idea that, no, no, we're, you know, basically God is going to bless us and in blessing us, we're going to be blessed politically, we're going to be blessed economically, and we're going to be blessed with uh, not just a religious freedom, but we're going to be blessed uh, with, with people... Uh, Loving the church, even if they're not believers, and, believe, and thinking that, that we're great people and that, um, and that we ought to have, uh, that we're good for society, that is, that is not what's described in Scripture. That's certainly what we've experienced a little bit in this country, but it's actually not what's described in Scripture for believers during this inter-advental period. And so we just need to, to be aware of these things, maybe even more, because Brothers, it might happen in our lifetime that we experience some of the things that Jesus is saying here that we might personally experience, not just in the news happening over there. Political upheaval. Also creation upheaval. See there, he talks about in verse um, um, 7b, there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. Well, that, that current environmental mess that we're experiencing right now in creation, Jesus said this is going to happen. 
There's going to be famines. There's going to be drought in California and Phoenix to such an extreme um, that all of a sudden they're not going to have the water that they've counted on for decades upon decades. Um, we're going to experience these hurricanes and natural disasters in a way because there is an upheaval in creation. There's going to be religious upheaval. Notice verses 9 and 11. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. There's going to be persecution, physical persecution. Again, I know that we as believers in America have not really experienced that. So sometimes it's like, well, is there something, is there something more coming? Is there like a greater uh, uh, persecution coming? Honestly, to even ask that question, and I've sometimes gone, well, okay, maybe there's some greater persecution coming, has been to completely miss the rest of the world. There have been more martyrs in the world, Christian martyrs, in the last hundred years than there were the entire 2,000 years before that. There is, there, is, there is incredible persecution of believers around the world right now. Um, there was a point at which in Sudan, you had two or three pastors or religious leaders, uh, Christian leaders, dying every day in that country. So there, and, and all Jesus is saying is this, is, this is going to happen. There's going to be apostasy. There's going to be a falling away. And you're like, what, what is that? Brothers, we can look at the history of the church <laughs> for 2,000 years. And in a lot of ways, you could design that. You could, you could write a book on the history of the church and call it apostasy. Because at different times and seasons, there's been a lot of falling away uh, from the faith. We don't have time to dive into exactly how that looks. Um, but Jesus says that's going to happen. And there's going to be false prophets. There's going to be those who come into the church and say, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be, or this is what's going to happen. And Jesus is just saying, this religious upheaval is hap- going to happen. He also says there's going to be cultural upheaval. It's one of my, uh, the verses that is most fascinating to me in this chapter, um, verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased or wickedness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That seems like an odd contrast. How does lawlessness, wickedness, cause people's love and passion to just grow dead? And I spent some time studying this, looking at this, and thinking about this, and uh, you know what? It makes sense. We've seen it. We're beginning to see it here in the United States. When you, when in, in the name of love and in passion and freedom, when you, when you let go of all the, the boundaries, when you, when you release, when you have no more fences, fencing in our behavior, because those things are considered, you know, restrictions on freedom, or those things are considered uh, the, the inability to love who I want to love. When that happens, what have we seen? We've actually seen a numbness, and psychologists will tell you this. There's a numbness, there's a discontentment. Um, there's an uncertainty about what you could actually be passionate about. Um, because uh, when you do that, eventually you, you, you lose any sense, any sense of what it means to truly have principles and love and give yourself to something. Um, that is the danger here. And Jesus is saying there's going to be this cultural upheaval. This unrestraint does not lead to love and to passion. But notice again, verse 6, all this is going to happen, but the end is not yet. This is just going to be the normal experience of this time. 
Jesus goes on and says there's going to be gospel proclamation. So there's going to be great persecution. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be apostasy. But also during this period, this interadvental period, there is going to be gospel proclamation around the world. And brothers, we've seen that in our lifetime. I mean, we're seeing it. We're seeing even the use of, of the internet and media and all that as a way to get the gospel into places that 50 years ago we couldn't have imagined it going into. I mean, just last week, or is it this week or next week, um, Dan Burns, uh, our missions pastor here, is uh, teaching for an entire week, I think on the book of Isaiah, he's teaching seminary students in China. But he's doing it from a room down the hall. <laughs> Again, it's going out, by, but God is, is using whatever means that God wants to use to get the gospel out. And Jesus says, this is going to happen. And then he zeroes in, in verses 15 to 21, on the destruction of the temple. Uh, it is, well, well, the, well, the dispensationalists want to argue that this uh, verse 15 through 21 has to do with some later period uh, with Israel and Jerusalem. There's just, <laughs> it's almost impossible to get there, especially when you understand what the, uh, the, the first century um, Christians understood in this context. And everything here makes complete sense with what happened in 70 AD. And in 66 AD, there was a Jewish rebellion against uh, the uh, Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire sent Titus and many legions of military uh, to, to crack down on that resistance. And they surrounded uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD uh, and laid siege to it. And what took place uh, between that moment when they surrounded it until the destruction is some of the most horrific stuff you could ever read. And if you look it up and read the Josephus account of it um, and other historical accounts of it, um, it is absolutely horrifying. The famine was so great in the city because it was right, it was right uh, before Passover had happened. And so there was uh, a few hundred thousand pilgrims had come into the city at that time. So the city had more people in it uh, than it was used to. So when it was surrounded and laid siege to, the food went out like that. And starvation was so great. And the stories of cannibalism are so disturbing that you understand the, the, the horrifying um, the statement that Jesus makes in verse 21 for this, this tribulation of, of the destruction of Jerusalem. Nothing like it has been seen since the beginning of the world and never will be. And you're like, are you sure? The Holocaust? He says there's no one escapes. And listen, brothers, there was no one that escaped. They, they say that over a million people were killed and that by the time the Romans broke through the walls, uh, though they had been given certain orders, Josephus says, to, uh, to have some restraint, for whatever reason, and of course I look and go, whatever reason, I think, I think that, that, that God let go of restraint. They said that the, that the Roman military acted with such rage that there were literally bodies piled up everywhere around the altar and the, and the temple, um, that, they were, that they were climbing over bodies to go kill others. They killed women and children. Like literally, everyone, you either were killed or you were put into slavery. No one escaped. And the temple, uh, they say, because it was the tradition to cleanse a, a temple, um, uh, they sacrificed a pig on the altar, which would have been an abomination. 
Um, they ransacked the Holy of Holies. Like they went all the way in and they just took all those elements out of, out of there, all the, the gold and everything in there. And then they just set fire to the whole thing with dead bodies and everywhere around. I mean, it was, it was absolute destruction. Even those who tried to flee to Masada and other places ended up either being killed by the soldiers who were chasing them or committing suicide um, because they felt the, that they were gonna, that the, the walls in, in Masada were about to be breached or the hill of Masada is about to be breached. And so anyone who was a Christian who lived around that time would have said, no, this, these words that Jesus said has to do with the temple. And that was a key point because what was God saying? God's saying, my presence is not there anymore. This is over. This is over. This temple thing is over. See, so people said, Todd, do you think they're going to rebuild the, the temple in Jerusalem? I don't. <laughs> well, one, because there's a mosque sitting at that point, and that would, that would take a lot of work, um, <laughs> to, uh, a lot of wars for that. Um, so Jesus is saying, listen, there's going to be these birth pains, and there's going to be one especially intense birth pain, and it's going to be the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And so Jesus' words came true in AD 70 that no stone was left upon another, that the temple was completely destroyed. And he also says during this period that there's going to be false Christ. You see it in verses 4 and 5, and then you also see it there at the end in verses 23 through 28. And Christ simply means anointed one. So it's not necessarily, there's some that have come and said throughout this interadvental period, some have said, I'm Jesus. Usually we're like, okay, you're not, right? Like those are easily to figure out, those guys, right? Who say, I'm Jesus. You're like, I don't think you are Jesus. Um, But there have been those even in the church who say, I'm anointed. And even others who feel like, you know, this person's especially anointed to actually lead us. Um, Sometimes that happens in the political realm, and we've seen throughout history where even people in the church have felt like, oh, this political leader has been anointed by God in order to lead us. Well, that kind of anointing would not only be uh, (laughs) um, incorrect uh, to what Jesus has said here, but it doesn't even fit Scripture. While the Old Testament did have, God did specially anoint some, For instance, remember that David wouldn't kill Saul unless he had been given permission by God and he hadn't because he considered Saul God's anointed, that there was a special anointing, that once the Holy Spirit came in Pentecost, there are none of us here in this room who are more anointed than the other. All of us have the Holy Spirit. There's no no more special anointing that exists in the New Testament since the Holy Spirit has come. And so there is no man or woman, no matter how great they might be a teacher or a leader, who has an anointing that is higher than yours in the kingdom of God. Uh, And Jesus is saying, look out for that. Don't, look what he says in verse uh, 26, do not believe it. And then he goes on and makes it clear in verse 27 and 28, uh, or verse 27, he makes it clear Listen, you're, the, the return of Christ is going to be unmistakable. Like, it's going to be, no one, you're not going to go, oh, is this it? Like, no, everybody will know this is it. 
It will be unmistakable when Christ returns, so don't be fooled by any of that. And now he's going to go on and talk about Christ's return. So let's read verses 29 through 35. Jesus says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, um, and by the way, those days, there's several places where it says those days. Those days, you can see, is referring back to uh, verse 8. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Um, he, those days, as you look at it in the Greek, um, you'll see, see as Carson and Wenham want to argue, no, this is referring to the birth pains. This is not referring to the specific uh, 70 AD event, but referring to this whole interadvental period. So immediately after the tribulation of this interadvental period, Jesus says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its lights. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. See also that when you see all these things, that's the birth pains, when you see all these things, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. As I said earlier, this description of, of Christ's return mirrors other passages. It's why I think that Carson is correct here that the, the end of the birth pains part takes place in verse 28. And now we're talking about the return of Christ because these are return of Christ's words used in other places in Scripture. Some things that I think are important for us to notice here. First, all will see it. Everyone will see it. Nobody's going to miss this. It's going to be unmistakable. He says in verse 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It's hard to know. What is he talking about? Is he talking about they'll mourn because finally, like tears of joy because Christ has returned? Or is it going to be tears of terror because Christ has returned? It, the passage doesn't really, doesn't really show us. The point of it is not the mourning. The point of it is it that all the tribes of the earth are going to see this because he then goes on, they will see the Son of Man. And so, brothers, I'd say this. It's going it's to be unmistakable. When Christ returns, we're, there's not going to be any of us on the face of the planet that aren't going to go, oh, this, that's it. Nobody's going to miss it. Nobody's going to go, I wonder what what's happens there. No, everybody's going to know exactly what's taking place. Um, it will be very clear that Christ has returned. Also notice it says, all will be gathered. All the elect will be gathered in verse 31. When he sends out his angels, a loud trumpet call, they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All of us, all throughout history, all that are living at that time, all are going to be gathered at Christ's return. So when it talks about, uh, you know, one standing next to the other and one being caught up, or when it talks about us in, in Thessalonians being caught up with him in the air, this is that gathering. And again, I do not think from Scripture you can make a clear argument that there's this rapture and then later on there's a return of Christ. I just think that's, you have to do a lot of crazy mental leaps to do that. I do believe that there's going to be a gathering. Scripture teaches there's going to be a gathering at Christ's return of the believers. And there's going to be a sense in which we are caught up with him. 
Uh, I don't know. I know that's true. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I know that that is even clearly here talked about in Scripture. And then also notice in verses 34 and 35 that all this is going to happen. (laughs) He's saying heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, we've got a little problem, I know, with verse 34. So let's stop there for a second. Some of you have already gone. Wait a second. Jesus just said to the disciples on the Mount of Olives, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. How is that possible? What's going on? Jesus didn't return. Again, the all these things is, re- is referring to what it says there in verse 8. It's referring to the birth pains. It's referring even to the destruction of the temple. So he's not talking about his return. He's talking about the interadvental period. You'll experience all these things. And you know what? Those disciples there, they did. They experienced all that Jesus said they would, the political upheaval, the creation upheaval, the religious upheaval, the cultural upheaval, the gospel proclamation, the destruction of the temple, false Christs, all of those things in their lifetime they experienced. And I think that's what Jesus was saying. He was saying these things, you're gonna, all these things are going to happen before, you know, before I come back and you're going to see these things in your generation. And your brother's going to see it in our generation too. And while I, I uh, go back and forth from Scripture and these different theologians of whether or not uh, the imminent return of Christ means that he could return before we end, amen, <laughs> or if it means the imminent return means it could, it could happen in the next few years, I have a tendency to lean from Scripture to, hey, there's some things I think are going to be more clear, some signs that are going to be a little more visible to us. But I would say this, at this point in human history, from all that's happened, according to Matthew 24, brothers, we, we, could, we could be less than a year away from Christ's return. I think that's not, a, that's not a stretch to say that. Now, we could also be a thousand years from Christ's return, too. I don't, I don't know which one it is. But I know that these things from, from Matthew 24, we've seen them in history in the last two years, even in our lifetime. And there might be, according to 1 Thessalonians, there might be one other big sign that we might need to actually see before Christ's return. But I don't, I don't think that's impossible for that to even happen in the next couple of years. Um, now, I would love that. Um, but the Lord knows what's best for us. Um, but he was telling the disciples, listen, you're going to experience all this, but don't worry. Everything I'm telling you is going to happen. It's inevitable. Let's turn to the last thing, last verses, verses uh, 36 through 51. So Jesus goes on, verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, 
For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is faithful, the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at a proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set them over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and he will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly what Jesus now is saying to his disciples is he's calling them to be ready. He's commanding them to be ready. He said, these things must happen and then the end is going to come. I'm commanding you to be ready. Why is that command so important? First of all, in verse 36, it's because his return is unpredictable. Jesus says that even the angels nor I know. It's 713, so I don't have time to dive into uh, how in the world is Jesus fully God and fully man and doesn't know uh, the, his own return. How is that possible? But only the Father knows. If you want to know more about that, send me an email uh, because I think it's fascinating to talk about how is it, what is it that Jesus gave up in his incarnation? But clearly here, Jesus is saying, I don't know the hour. Only the Father knows. Um, And so it reminds us, we probably should stop and anybody who's in the church and anybody prophesying should stop saying, oh, I know what's going to happen in such and such a time. And as I said a few weeks ago in a sermon, there's already some, there's a great prophecy about, you know, Jesus returning in 2021. We've got a few months left. There's one for 2022. There's one for 2025. And I'm telling you, if Jesus doesn't know, these people don't know. <laughs> so we can, let, we can let that go. It's unpredictable. Verse 37 through 41, it's unexpected. I think the key of Jesus talking about the time of Noah is the fact that they were just going about their regular life. They were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. What he's saying is, it's going to happen when everybody's just going about their regular business. Even in the midst of crazy wars, people go about their business. Even in the midst of World War II, there were people marrying and being given in marriage. All of these, there were restaurants open, you know. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, there's going, this is going to be unexpected People are just going to be going about their lives, not thinking that I'm returning. And that's when it's going to happen. And then in verses 42 through 51, we see that it's going to be inevitable. Verse 42, the Lord is coming. Verse 44, the Son of Man is coming. It is inevitable. This is going to happen. Jesus is going to return. Nothing is going to thwart that. What took place at the cross 2,000 years ago D-Day, the beachhead established, the war was won. And Jesus Christ is marching to victory. The kingdom was established. The kingdom was inaugurated. And now during the period in which we live, this interadvental period, Christ is marching forward to the point at which he's going to return. And it is going to happen. And brothers, it might happen in our lifetime. It might happen in the next couple years. We might be the ones who are alive at the time when Christ is returned. And as Jesus points out here in this passage regarding the master of the house um, and being left, or excuse me, the faithful servant, verse 45, 
And it says in verse 46, Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Again, we don't get to heaven because we were doing the right thing when Jesus returned. We get to heaven because Christ died on a cross and saved us from our sins. But as I asked the congregation a couple weeks ago, when Jesus does return, when he ret- if he returns in your lifetime, what do you want to be caught doing when he comes back? Or what do you not want to be caught doing? What business do you want to be about? What, what do you want your relationships to be about? All of that, Jesus is saying we need to be ready. This is unpredictable, unexpected, and inevitable. The Lord is coming. I'll close with this. Over and over again, we keep hearing, don't we, in, in, in the news and in, in speeches and in arguments that uh, we got to be on the right side of history. <laughs> and of course, that usually means, what they mean by that is, hey, history's marching in this direction, and you either get on board with that or you're going to be on the wrong side of history because 10 years, five years, I mean, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, this is what's going to be accepted. And the fact that you're not accepting it means you're on the wrong side of history. And usually that's an argument for some kind of lawlessness, some kind of releasing all the, the bounds of any kind of restriction, right? And if you don't get on that train, if you don't get, become part of that, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. And honestly, I don't, if I'm talking to someone and, I, and I'm trying to get the opportunity to lead them to Christ, I, I, don't, I don't laugh out loud. I don't laugh at them. I don't say that's silly. But brothers in my heart, I say that's silly. Because I, I, I know, you know where history's going. I, I know where the right side of history is. The right side of history is the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is going to return. I know where history is going. And so, yeah, I'm actually choosing as best I can through the power of the Holy Spirit to live on the right side of history, which is to live with the expectancy that Christ could return in my lifetime. And I, and I want to be about his business. I want to be, the, be that faithful servant. Now, again, not because, not because God is going to judge me based on what he catches me doing. No, praise the Lord just like you who've given your lives to Christ, I'm going to be judged on the merits of Christ at the cross. And so there is an incredible freedom in that. I am, I am clothed in righteousness before him, not by my own doing, but as one who is a dearly loved son, as you who are dearly loved sons, as the Bible talks about, dearly loved sons by your father. When your father comes home, what do we want to be doing? As we wait for him, expectantly. What do we want to be doing? Jesus says to his disciples, be ready. Be ready. The Lord is coming. I'm coming back. It's inevitable. It's the right side of history. Brothers, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beauty and the power of your word. Lord, we have unpacked so much here, and there's so much more for us to learn. Uh, Thankfully, Father, um, um, we have time. And if we don't have time, Father, if you're coming soon, oh, Lord, we can, we can learn more and more as we sit at your feet worshiping you. Father, we do long for your return. We long for the new heavens and the new earth. We long for what is wrong to be made right, for justice to finally be done. Father, we are grateful that by the 
work of Christ, we are clothed in righteousness. Father, if there's anyone in the hearing of my voice this morning or on the tape who is not ready, who is not clothed in righteousness, Father, would you have mercy on them like you did on me? And would you reveal yourself to them that they might know the love and the forgiveness, the salvation of God, that all of us might be ready for your return, might be excited about your return. Father, that we would be on the right side of history. Pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Hey, and and good work to you all. You hung in there. Ha, 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 ha.